Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. As usual, today we will be answering questions on meditation and Buddhist practice. So you're welcome to post questions anytime in the chat. For the first 15 minutes, uh, you're welcome to post greetings or comments or anything you like in the chat, as long as it's mindful and thoughtful and considerate. But uh, we would ask that if you don't have questions, or once you've asked your questions, that we spend the first 15 minutes in silent meditation, walking or sitting or walking and sitting. It gives us a chance to collect the questions so that at quarter after the hour, we will start asking the questions and answering them. So until the quarter after the hour from here, we have silent meditation.
Okay, we're back. So from here on, we will begin asking and answering questions. Chris is here to help. Uh, if you have any questions, you can continue to post them in the chat. If you don't have questions, well, from now on, we'll try and remove everything in the chat that isn't a question just to keep it clean. So you can just sit back and stay mindful. Questions? I feel kind of selfish when I practice meditation, and I think about all of the suffering people in the world. What can I do to change this view of mine? Well, the best way to change views is to learn. Um, and learning works to change views that are wrong. Obviously, if the more you learn about the truth, uh, the, the harder it is to keep views that go against the truth. But um, it doesn't sound like a view, per se. So a view related to what you're talking about would be, I believe meditation is selfish, and uh, because people are suffering in the world. Sounds a little bit silly when it's phrased like that, but it's hard to go any further because one isn't related to the other. So I guess the, the bridge would be when I could be spending the same time ending the suffering of people in the of all the people in the world, which still sounds silly, but that we can maybe leave off all the suffering people in the world. But the proposition is then that you would better help as many people in the world as humanly possible. But where does that end? You know, what isn't selfish in that case? Because you've you basically submitted the axiom that or the premise that um, the best thing you can do at any given time is to try and end the suffering of people in the world. So then you shouldn't eat, you shouldn't sleep. I suppose a a rebuttal to that would be, well, you need to eat and sleep and drink and all, do all these things, or else it will uh, inhibit your ability to help others. So we get kind of an answer to that view by saying that, well, meditation is a, is one of the best ways to help other people. Why? Because it makes you a better person. And only a person who uh, a person is only able to help others to the extent that they have qualities that allow them to help others. If you're a selfish sort of person, then your ability to help others is greatly hampered, and you begin to resent any time you're called upon to help others. And so since meditation helps you become less selfish, I mean, it helps you give up all sorts of self-clinging tendencies, it actually turns out to be quite um, self-effacing, quite helpful for other people. An enlightened being is the most help to others. So that's kind of an answer if you want to talk about changing that kind of a view. Um, but another part of the answer is that there is no evidence or you haven't proposed a, a premise for your um, for the idea that helping the suffering, alleviating the suffering of other people is somehow beneficial. I'm not saying it isn't. I'm just pointing out that you haven't said it's even at all beneficial, let alone the most important thing, or more important than, say, helping oneself. 
So you'd have to find um, an argument if you want to support that view. You'd have to find an argument where it's somehow better to help other people than to help yourself. Which, of course, runs into that problem Well, where, well, if everyone's helping other people and nobody's helping themselves, then, you know, whoever gets helped. I mean, to some extent, externally helping, if everybody was helping everybody else, then everybody would get helped. So that does make sense. Um, but I think it falls apart when you talk about inner help. Because you can't change someone's mind for them. You can't free someone from depression or anxiety or fear or trauma or that sort of thing. That has to happen internally. Self-help turns out to be much more effective for the most important kinds of suffering. So probably the best rejoinder or, or, or argument rebuttal to this idea that one shouldn't meditate, one should instead be helping others alleviate suffering is that no no being can alleviate another being's suffering. As I said, it doesn't sound like you really are talking about a view, though. You're talking about a feeling, a guilty feeling, a worry, an uncertainty. So it's not exactly a view. It's just um, a confusion, a lack of ignorance based on a lack of knowledge. You don't know whether it's uh, right or wrong. Is it selfish to practice meditation? And you, you feel worried that it might be. Hmm. You think about all the people in the suffering in the world and it, it worries you that you're, it makes you feel guilty. But you haven't actually said that you hold the view. And, and quite likely you don't. Um, and I point this out because these are the kinds of things that you can take as meditation objects. You don't need to rely on argumentation and, and rebuttals and that sort of thing. In fact, for most views, you don't really have to do that either. All you have to do is approach reality, try to understand experiential reality as it is, become more familiar with it. With, with I guess, the, the preliminary view or the preliminary perspective of letting go of your views, making the determination that if a view is in line with the truth, then investigation of the truth will make that view self-evident, right? So any idea you might have about it being good to help other people should show itself if you under start to understand reality more. But it turns out that when you start to approach reality, that kind of idea doesn't, doesn't ever pop up, doesn't ever take hold. Most views don't, in fact. There's not, there's not a lot of views that do hold up to inspection of reality. Inspection of reality starts to show you that most views are just superfluous and useless and just a cause for vexation, stress, worry, guilt, these sorts of things. They don't actually have any bearing on reality. Helping others doesn't enter into the equation. Even helping yourself doesn't really enter into the equation. It becomes more about doing the right thing, uh, having understanding your situation, understanding reality at every moment. And that includes things like uh, understanding feelings of, of guilt and worry and fear about being selfish and that sort of thing. Those are simply objects of mindfulness, and you start to see that there's no benefit to those things. It doesn't help other people to feel selfish or guilty. It doesn't make you a better person. It doesn't make you better able to help others. And so you let go of that feeling of guilt and you start to learn how to approach reality from what is most useful and most beneficial, the right thing to do, say, and think all the time. And you don't have to worry about who you're helping, how many people you're helping. It just doesn't enter into the equation. What is jealousy? And do you have any advice of how to let go of jealousy? Jealousy is a um, combination of things. There's, there's two parts. There's the desire to have what other people have. But then there's also the wish for them not to have the things they have. You know, the aversion towards someone's gain. There can also be conceit involved, comparing oneself with others feeling worse or better than them. There can be fear involved, 
fear that others might uh, get what you have, fear of losing the advantage you have over someone else, fear of never getting or depression for never getting what other people have, feeling depressed when you think about what others have. It's just, a, I mean, it's fairly complex. I mean, it's not complicated. It's just complex, which means there's there's lots of stuff going on. And so you would just take it apart and note, you wouldn't make a narrative, I'm jealous about this. You, you would notice what you're actually experiencing at every given, any given time. It can be very difficult in the beginning to catch everything, but you'll catch some things. Probably in the beginning, just catch a bad feeling, physical feeling even, of, uh, of tension or pain, like a headache you might feel that, that comes on from anger, the aversion towards what other people have or fear, or worry, or all these things would be physical sensations that result from the emotions. And as you're more, um, after, as you become more skilled at it, you'll start to pick up on your emotions. You'll see when you're angry, and you'll be able to say angry, or you want something that someone has wanting, that sort of thing. There's nothing special about it. It's just complex. So you have to take, you have to catch what you're experiencing at any given moment, try and look beyond the name jealousy and see what you're actually experiencing and that we cover in our booklet you can read our booklet you could do the at-home course that might help whenever i think of a certain person who is still alive i feel angry and afraid even though i haven't talked to him in several years how can i learn to let go of these feelings you have to understand them. Letting go, remember this, this is an important point. Letting go comes from understanding. It doesn't come from wanting to let go. It doesn't come from trying to let go. It comes from understanding, which comes from familiarity. The more familiar you are with something, the more closely you observe it with, with objectivity, not with so not with being partial not with partiality because you can really fixate on uh, your emotions and then you'll even though you're very focused on them you never know them because you're you're partial to them you're you're feeding them um, you're feeding them either because you approve of them or you disprove either one will feed them give them power create tension and feed the the situation but if you look on with objectivity, you become more familiar and you start to understand the experience and you start to see the experiences for what they are, those that cause you stress and suffering, you start to see that about them. And so you start to give them up. So there's nothing special about anger or fear. You just have to remember that, that these aren't problems, they're just experiences. They are problems sort of if you think intellectually about it, but you have to approach them not as problems, but as experiences not problems to be solved, experiences to be understood. And those experiences that are problematic will be seen as such through understanding. And you just won't give rise to them. It's just natural. They won't come again. So if you haven't read our booklet, you could try that and you can do the at-home course that we have. We still got lots of room. It's great to see there's still people picking up the at-home course. Even after all this time, we keep having more people, but there's always lots of slots and it's all free and we don't we're never going to ask for money or anything from you. Just the commitment of doing meditation every day. And then we'll guide you through it. I now have, uh, we have one other person teaching. If you don't want to talk to me, there's another edit is uh, taking students. And then we have a new person, Adder, who is sitting in with me to listen and to learn how to do it. And he will eventually, hopefully, start uh, teaching people on his own as well. I have noticed consistently that I'm more meditative during a new moon, and I feel like meditating for much longer then. Should I take advantage of this, or simply stick to the normal practice? I mean, you could... I hesitantly say anything that makes you want to meditate more is technically useful. The problem here is that um, noticing that you're more meditative is probably not something um, that I would laud. 
praise or, or, or recommend, encourage. Probably you're just talking about feeling more calm, feeling more peaceful, feeling more, more focused. And that's fine and well, but it doesn't really teach you about the nature of reality because it's unpredictable. And the problem with fixating on when it's easy, if there's some reason that it gets easier, is that it makes you partial to those situations, partial to the easier situations, which is how we find ourselves in this life most of the time. We're very easy, to, we're very able to deal with the easy situations. But as a result, the harder situations or the uncomfortable situations become so much harder to deal with because of our fixation on the easy ones. So honestly, you should um, try your best to be objective about how you feel about your meditation, whether you feel quote-unquote meditative, which doesn't really mean anything in the context of Satipatthana. The only way you can be more meditative is if you're mindful more, if you're actually noting things consistently and have clarity. Then we might say you're more meditative. Uh, just because you feel like meditating much longer doesn't, I mean, it often just says that you, you're happier, you're more peaceful, which isn't really actually necessarily a good thing because it doesn't challenge you, it doesn't show you how you are when you're not peaceful, it doesn't teach you about uh, pain or suffering, it doesn't teach you about reality but because it's only one side of the coin. Uh, it can teach you if you're objective about it, but if you're objective about it, then you wouldn't see it as a good thing. You would just see it as, as it is, calm as calm, happy as happy. So you have to try and note those things whenever you have a good situation, calm or happiness or that sort of thing. I've had trouble seeing where meditation goes from being practical to spiritual. Should I be acknowledging any Buddhist elements when meditating, or is it just okay to focus on it separately? Well, it might take some work or some in some reflection to uh, be able to integrate them, but there really is no difference. I mean, the Buddhist teaching is completely practical. It just can seem quite foreign. The concepts like rebirth, for example, seem very spiritual, I guess you might say. I mean, that's not the word I would use, but they seem they can seem very mystical or belief-based, even faith-based, but they're not. They're a description of reality, and it's all about descriptions of reality. And so you just have to align yourself, shift your perspective to be able to understand how reality is the way it is, and that includes many of the things that the Buddha said. Those things that aren't practically related to your reality, like things about ancient Indian culture or society or that sort of thing, might not be very relevant, so you don't have to focus on those. But the core concepts of the Buddhist teaching are, are you know, they're, they're basically all practical. I, mean, I don't really know the word spiritual, how you're using it or what it means to you, but it doesn't really mean a lot to me. The word doesn't have much meaning except to talk about, I guess, that which is not practical, I suppose. So Buddhism is absolutely practical. Maybe it's called practical spirituality, I don't know. My sister has lost her daughter this year, and is still sad six months later. What is the best thing to say? Well, sometimes the best thing to say, the best thing to do is ask, you know, to to listen. Think of how a therapist deals with the person who is coping. They try to make help people come to terms with their feelings. If you think of what mindfulness is, it's just about acknowledging, recognizing, and seeing objectively your experiences. So, um... I mean, ultimately, there's not a lot you can do, and you shouldn't think like you can fix another person. But you can be there for them. Obviously, you can be uh, supportive and sensitive, considerate, helpful. She might be sad for a long time. If she doesn't have mindfulness, she could be sad for a long, long time. So if you have mindfulness, just being mindful gives you the the capacity to say things to her that are mindful and to not say things when nothing needs to be said for those people who 
get worried about other people and are constantly asking them, are you all right, are you all right? That really makes them just feel worse, that sort of thing. So if you're mindful, you, you, you give them space, even just that, the not fussing about them, right? Like in the Tao Te Ching, it says, um, when you're frying a fish, if you poke at it too much, you ruin it. So it says something like that. Yeah, you need a you need a delicate touch in reality. You can't fix things. You have to just do always what the what is the right thing. Just and so the answer is very simple. Just always do the right thing. If only we knew it is the right thing, right? But that's the magic and the power of mindfulness. It absolutely does provide you with the capacity to say and do and think the right thing all the time. It takes that that takes of course skill and training, but it becomes pretty simple. It's not like it's complicated. It just means be mindful, speak mindfully, act mindfully. After the at home course, I got off track. I intend to meditate, but it almost never happens, at least not so frequent. Do you have any tips? Well, your best bet is to find a way to do an intensive course. Come to our center or go to a center where you can do that. Uh, if you're not able to do that, I mean, you could start a, a group in your area, but having a community and having others around you who meditate is quite helpful as well. But um, try try and maybe not be so hard on yourself. Don't expect so much as you were doing during the at-home course. What I recommend is to try to do at least some every day. If you're doing zero on any given day, that's not enough, but it doesn't take much to do at least some. It takes something. It takes uh, dedication. But anybody can do 10 minutes walking, 10 minutes sitting, or even just a little sitting if you got no time. But it takes time. This is a, a real skill that you have to develop. The, the d determination, the um, the discipline. Often I cannot sense a rising and or falling movement, even when laying down. Is it okay just to say feeling, feeling? or pressure building, releasing? I mean, if you have some feeling, you can note that, but um, for, for doing this technique, you have to find the rising and falling. It often relates to the, the, um, the state of mind, of tension, of worrying, of wanting, or of frustration, or all of that. There's a lot of things that you're likely ignoring, and... By ignoring those, the tension builds, and, and your approach to the meditation isn't very mindful. So you might try to force the stomach to rise and fall or tense the stomach up or something like that as a result of the obsession. So you have to learn to let go. Um, I mean, it just takes... You have to focus on the what you are experiencing. So yes, if you feel feelings, but also note your hindrances, liking, disliking, and things like wanting or frustration, boredom, sadness, fear. If you feel drowsy or if you feel restless or worry, if you have any doubt or confusion, you have to note all those. They're usually what's getting in the way. But you can also put your hand on your stomach. That sometimes helps. Given that the breath is a neutral meditation object, are there drawbacks to conceiving of it as metta during meditation? Can putting such a conceptualization on the breath ever be helpful? Absolutely not. The one thing you never want to do in meditation is call one thing by another thing's name. You're, 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 you're lying to yourself, basically. You're deluding yourself. You're, you're making more out of experience than it actually is. That's not even fair to say. You're completely denying reality by calling one thing by another thing's name. So absolutely not. You should never do that. It's just delusion. 
there's nothing about the breath that has anything to do with metta. Metta is a state of mind. It has nothing whatsoever to do with the breath. I mean, the only far out tangential relation I can think of is wishing for other beings to be able to continue to draw breath. Right? If you think like that, then okay, maybe. If you say, may that person continue to draw breath. That's the only way I can think of that the two are even tangentially related. I mean, there's probably other tangential relations, but absolutely you would never call, you would never confuse the two. That's the that's as close as they would ever get. Metta is metta. So if you want to practice metta, then you're trying to cultivate it. Uh, if you're practicing mindfulness and you want to call things what they actually are, you would never call something by what it is not. That, I believe, is wrong and dangerous because of the mind states it creates. It encourages delusion. It encourages wrongness. It encourages a distortion of reality, a wrinkle, if you will. You're, you're screwing things up. You're perverting nature. Breath is breath. Metta is metta. It's, it's, I believe, the same as for people who call the breath Buddha. There are people who practice watching the breath and say, Buddha, Buddha. And they, it screws them up. I mean, in my mind, it does. I'm sorry to say, I mean, there's actually some fairly famous teachers who teach this, so uh, I, I may upset people by this, but, don't, you know, I'm, nobody's going to take me seriously unless they are. So this is my I mean, honest belief is that it screws them up. And you hear them say things like, um, the breath is the, is Buddha, and and therefore this this awareness of the breath is Buddha, and I am Buddha, or something like that. And you get to a pure awareness of the breath, and you've become Buddha, or something. I mean, it's just it, it 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 creates narratives in your mind, and then your ideology is based on those narratives, which are complications. It's not based on reality. That dude, that's just your breath. Right? It's it's impermanent suffering and non-self. That's all it is. Get over it. No, it becomes much more than that. You don't don't do what you're asking. If you have, if you want my opinion, do not do that. The worst thing, you, well, it's a, it's, it's a fundamental error, fundamental uh, thing. Do not do that. One of the first do not do's in mindfulness practice. Absolutely. My family owns a farm, and sometimes they expect me to kill chickens to consume it. This puts me in a difficult situation as someone serious about the practice, but I still need to eat. How can I proceed? Well, don't eat chickens, I guess. Eat things that aren't chickens. There's no ends, ifs, or buts about it. You can't be you can't be a practicing Buddhist and kill chickens or any sentient being. If you're if you're intentionally performing acts of killing or telling other people to kill for you, telling other people people to kill at all, you can't be consider yourself to be a practicing Buddhist. So there, there's no there's no leeway here. You just absolutely don't. Even if it means death, even if it means you die, that's the creed of a Buddhist. I mean, it really. Is unlikely that it means you're going to die. In certain weird situations, it is possible, but I hope that's not the case for you. And there are other things in your world that you can eat besides chickens. So just get yourself out of the difficult situation. You've become vegetarian, maybe. Vegetarian's pretty good. How do we let go of our idea of a self? Well, I think it goes back to the very first question, just through practice. The idea is just another view. It's a view of self, and it's a fairly pernicious one. So you really can't um, argue your way out of it or uh, uh, sort of rationalize your way out of it. The best way is just see reality, and then any idea of self you'll see just has no place. It just doesn't come into your mind. When you're practicing mindfulness, self, non-self, not like I have a self, I don't have a self. None of that, just none of that enters into the equation. 
what you see about you what you see about reality is that well reality isn't what you thought per se but the things that are real are certainly not self they have no quality of selfness to them and you start to see the error of your ways by grasping at things as being self or belonging to self it's an important part of the buddhist teaching i don't mean to trivialize it it's just that uh that's what goes out the window you start you start to let go of ideas this is myself this i am this is mine that sort of thing you see the error in those sorts of ideas just through ob direct observation because they have no place in ultimate reality they have no basis on inexperience they're just theoretical ideas conceptions I am doubting if meditation is about concentration, like concentrating or fixing on momentary experience. Maybe concentration is wrong translation. Am I wrong? Um, no, I mean, concentration in that sense is a good word. I, I like focus better. Um, it, it may have something more to do with focus. Uh, than concentration, like if you focus a camera, it has to be in focus, but we also use focus to talk about concentration. But um, there is a sense of fixing, absolutely. You fix on momentary experience, just for the moment. The, the key is to be to be agile, to not fo to not fixate on it uh, on it for more than a moment, and that's what you'll find you're doing in the beginning. You fixate on something and you think it's going to last, and then it doesn't last, and you get caught off guard. So you're not agile, you're not flexible. But when you become flexible and agile and you start to understand that realities only last for short moments, you get better at it. You just become more talented at letting go of things, fixating on things and then letting go of them when they when they cease. Keeping up, it's like keeping in rhythm, or it's not a rhythm at all, but keeping up to the 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 pace of reality. But in that moment, it's important that you do have a grasp of the object. So there is a fixating on it or a fixing on it just for that moment. It just has to be agile. Now, in samatha meditation, the fixing doesn't have to be agile. Not in the same way, because the object is conceptual and it lasts. And so you can fixate on it for long periods of time. But it's the same quality. It's easier to fixate on a single object, but fixating on many on real objects, on experiences that are constantly arising and ceasing, uh, gives you the added bonus of understanding reality. I mean, the fixing, fixating provides wisdom and understanding about your your the way your mind works, the way reality works. But in the long run, it does have to become very focused and very fixed, just moment by moment called Lakkanupanijana, or momentary concentration, Kanika Samadhi. Lately, noticing is feeling pretty effortless to me. Is this of any meaning and relevance? Yes and no. I mean, you can, you can appreciate that that is a sign of um, some positive qualities of mind the only why the only reason why saying in, in fact is generally yes but the only no is that it also can become a hindrance when you fixate on that when you start to notice and and become complacent so the, the yes it it is could be considered a good thing but no you have to note it just as you would anything else so when you notice that it's pretty effortless you have to note that feeling Maybe it's a feeling of calm, maybe it's a feeling of peace or happiness. Or Note those feelings of it being effortless. Or if it's just an, an awareness of it happening by itself, sometimes you can note knowing, knowing. Just make sure you're objective about it so you don't cling to it, whatever it is. I have a hard time letting go of unpleasant feelings, and it perpetuates them makes them worse and i cling how can i stop or help this so i can let go you can't stop one of the big things you learn in mindfulness is that you're not in charge this is an aspect of non-self that you can't turn things off you can't stop things um 
So this last, your question is a kind of like a paradox, right? I mean, it's no, it's self-contradicting because you've um, trying to find ways to stop help is the opposite of letting go. So this kind of question is very common, but it shows our deep, deep misconception, misunderstanding or lack of understanding of what we're actually saying when we say let go. Let go is the opposite of trying to fix, of messing with things, right? If you had a festering wound, let's say, and you just let the festering wound go, then you wouldn't try to cure it. You wouldn't try to clean it out. You just let it go and you'd probably die or lose a limb from it, right? That's what letting go is. Letting go means just letting it go. How to observe so, the breath as it is repetitive and monotonous. Sorry, can you hear me? I'm still on this one. I haven't finished. I'll return to it. But you heard me, right? Mm-hmm. I thought you were okay. finished. No, not yet. There you are. Sorry, it takes a second here. So um, the hard time is mostly in the reactions, in the trying to fix. Um, but the, the, the great thing about mindfulness is that it, it's not like a festering wound in that sense per se, but, well, I guess it kind of is. Mindfulness is like um, cleaning out the wound, I suppose. Uh, cleansing the wound because the festering is our reactions and so rather than focusing on whatever it is you think is letting go or whatever or, or focusing on fixing or stopping or helping again try to focus on learning and understanding so this hard time letting go is just um, barking up the wrong tree it's a red herring it's not useful Rather than letting go, try to understand. And that involves facing, which is very much the opposite of what we think of as letting go. We think letting go is uh, having it let go of us or, or leaving, you know, running away from, basically. Avoiding. Letting go is includes letting come. If you're not letting come, you're not letting go. There's a, there's a quote for you. If you're not letting come, you're not letting go. And so letting go involves giving up your partiality, giving up your reaction, your, your reactiveness. So rather than trying to let go of unpleasant feelings, face them, study them, learn about them. I mean, that does lead to letting go. Uh, but it doesn't lead to them stopping, you see. So I have a hard time letting go of unpleasant feelings, and it perpetuates them. You see, part of the problem is you're concerned about the feelings being perpetuated. You don't want them to be perpetuated, and that's not letting go, that's clinging. So letting go, part of letting go is being okay with them being perpetuated, or, be, or becoming quote-unquote worse. Because the truth is that the feelings aren't actually the problem, whether they're stronger or weaker. Problem is the reactions to them, the clinging. But the only way to free yourself from that clinging is to become objective and to face objectively those feelings without wavering. And that takes uh, that takes strength. It also takes it takes a shift away from the idea of fixing and and avoiding and and dispelling to uh, acknowledging. I'm facing. Okay, now I'm done. Sadhu. How to observe the breath as it is repetitive and monotonous? So it being repetitive and monotonous isn't a isn't a cause for it to be hard to observe. There's something very ob glaringly obvious that you're not saying here. And that is how you react to the fact of it being repetitive and monotonous. In fact, it being repetitive and monotonous is the very reason why we observe it. 
And you know why that is? Why 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 we take that stance? Why that's true? Is because it being repetitive and monotonous triggers uh, any any ha bad habits you might have. It allows us to see the nature of the mind as it reacts to something that is repetitive and monotonous. That's what makes it such a good object. I mean, another thing I guess I could say is that it is in fact not repetitive and monotonous. I mean, to some extent, of course, it is, but to another extent, it's actually quite chaotic. I mean, the breath itself is not predictable, even though you we conceive of it as predictable. You think, well, it's just always happening. In fact, it's not. And once you become more ob observant, you'll see that it actually, you'll realize that, oh, actually, yeah, it, w it was like that, and now it's like this, and, so, and here it's here, and now I can't even find the breath, that sort of thing. But more importantly, the chaos involves the mind. The experience of watching the breath is actually quite exciting for a newcomer not usually in a good way, but exciting in the sense that there's a lot of stuff going on. There's boredom, frustration, desire, expectation. And there can be lots of things, doubt, confusion, fear. All of those things are quite uh, non-repetitive. I mean, non-monotonous. The experience is not monotonous at all. There's just so much going on. Even when you're bored because something appears repetitive and monotonous, that's that's a, a break from the monotony. So I mean, the answer is to let go of all the reasons why you don't like things that are repetitive and monotonous. I mean, learn about them. Study your aversion, the boredom, the wanting to do something else, that sort of thing. That's the whole reason why we... I mean, that's a great part of the reason why we practice. As a lay person, would daily morning and or evening chanting be beneficial to my practice? Yes, sure, of course. Not not game changing, right? It wouldn't be a huge thing, but it can be a significant thing for sure. Depending on what you're chanting, I guess. I, I would recommend chanting very orthodox things. Um, orthodox people probably don't like that word, but I think it's a good word. We just have to reclaim it. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of weird stuff that people chant that are not orthodox, like made up by some monk or something like that. I know one chant that's very common. It's just weird. Like it talks about making a cage out of all the Buddha, all the, all the, um, all the enlightened beings. Like you put the, you put Ananda in your liver or that sort of thing. And, I guarantee that I, I can tell you that that is not orthodox, and I really don't understand why people are so fixated on chanting that one. But like um, the Buddha himself recommended chanting mindfulness of the Buddha. There's a chant or a recollection of the Buddha, recollection of the Dhamma, recollection of the Sangha. He recommended that. So those uh, very orthodox, very simple, very straightforward chants are beneficial. I would I would avoid generally chants that are fixated on on some kind of protective meaning. Because they create in you this idea of, and they create fear actually, you know, like the need to be protected. They they create obsession about being protected. So rather than trying to protect yourself, protect yourself with the Dhamma, with recollection of the Buddha. Think about the Buddha and that the power of that happiness that comes from thinking about an enlightened being is just, that's the greatest protection. You don't need anything that is literally protective or saying, may I be protected from this or that. Don't do that. I'd say that those are not as helpful. We've come to the end of the hour and asked all the questions in the highest tier. Okay, thank you for your help. We need more volunteers. Our volunteers are all away today, besides Chris and me. So if anybody wants to help with YouTube and our volunteer community, uh, let us know. If anyone isn't in our volunteer community and... Uh, would like to be able to join our Discord server and uh, you can join the volunteer meetings. Thank you to all our volunteers for all that they do. And thank you all for all your questions. Thanks, Chris, for coming out every week without fail. You. you all have peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering and a good week. Sadhu. Sadhu.